We at Refuge Ministries are so blessed by the success of Refuge Freedom Stories and podcasts. In addition, we focus on youth prison ministry, release kits, and many other diverse outreaches to the needs of our community. As a nonprofit, there are many costs involved, however, and we are asking for your support. Financial gifts can be made via our website at www.refugeministriescanada.com or by calling 519-701-0108. Your giving makes this work possible, and we thank you in advance for your support. God bless you. Welcome to Refuge Freedom Stories. I'm your guest host, Sean McKenzie. So pleased to have you for another episode here. And I have a special guest. His name is Ernie Probacher. And now here's the fun thing. I have never spoken to a gentleman who has physics degrees from both Caltech and MIT. And he has spent 15 years driving the adoption of open source and Unix at Apple. And now works with a wide range of startups as a spiritual entrepreneur. And we're going to dive into that. And we're also going to dive into about uh, challenges that he has had in his life. And Ernie, thank you so much for giving us a few moments of your time here today. Oh, well, it's a real honor to be here, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I kind of made a joke about, you know, the two physics degrees, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But your journey of faith is something that amazed me when I read about it. So let's talk about first that journey of faith and how it has shaped who you are. Yeah, so I want to start way, way back in the 1700s, because at the very beginning of the Protestant movement in Europe, there was a movement called Pietism, which is where we get the idea of quiet times and lay people really studying the Bible. And originally, they were just focused on converting Catholics in Europe to Protestantism. But the King of Denmark wanted to sponsor missionaries to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. So he brought, he got found this German Lutheran missionary named Ziegenbach. And he went to a place called Trankabar on the east coast of India and baptized a young man who took the name of Eric, who as far as we can tell, he was probably the first Protestant minister outside of Europe. And he is my ninth generation ancestor. And so my family grew up with this incredible Indian heritage in a fairly Christian area of South India. And then in the 1960s, during the Vietnam War, my father just got his medical degree and they were importing U.S. doctors to the U.S. to make up for the shortage of medical personnel. And so he got a visa, came with my mother and my older brother to Chicago to study medicine and get trained in surgery. And I was born three months later in the U.S. uh, in a Chicago winter to Indian parents. (laughs) What a shock. Yeah. And so I love that story because there is this really rich heritage of, you know, if you want to look at it in a positive sense, in terms of missions and pietism and learning and immigration. But on the darker side, there's colonialism, there's all the religious wars that were going on in Europe, there was the Vietnam War that is the pretext for why I'm in the U.S. And it's a very complicated, complex heritage, depending on how you want to look at it. 
And so uh, because of that, I grew up with this very strange bicultural upbringing. And it was strange because my brother, who had been born in India, was more Indian than I was. He spoke the Indian language. He ate Indian foods. He was comfortable with Indian culture. But he was also more American than I was. He played football. He was in his fraternity in college. And so I grew up very confused and disoriented. And looking back, I think that I turned to theology and physics as a way to sort of ground my identity in something absolute. So culturally, I didn't really feel like I fit in. This was in the, you know, the 70s. This was before nerds were cool. And so, you know, it was a challenge growing up. And so I actually dropped out of high school to go to MIT. And I have a PhD from Caltech. And depending on which day you ask me, I may tell you which one I'm more embarrassed by and which one I'm more proud of. (laughs) Wow, that's quite the journey. Now, the beautiful thing is we talk to a lot of people and their stories are all unique. Of course, sometimes people say, well, you know, you're a Christian, you grew up in a Christian family, your life must have been just great, but there are potholes along the roads. And <laughs> and you hit a few of those potholes on your journey. Yeah. So, you know, the way I describe it to people is I feel like I've been becoming a Christian all my life because about every decade I say, oh my God, this is what it means to be a Christian. I was totally clueless about this before. And after the third or fourth time, I'm starting to have a little bit more grace for myself. But it really is a journey. So like I prayed the prayer at a Baptist youth camp when I was eight years old. So it's like, yeah, this makes sense. I go along with this. But I actually hit rock bottom the first time when I was 13 years old. You know, I, I am probably above average intelligence which is not as useful of a thing as one might think. And in particular, I kind of hit self-awareness in fifth grade, which meant that I was self-aware going through junior high, which was why I wanted to kill myself by the time I was 13. And what was interesting was the logic of it, which, you know, was almost true, which is that, like, it was really clear that everyone around me wanted to be happy. And it was equally clear that everything they were doing was completely sabotaging any chance they had of being happy. And I just saw this happening. I saw other people doing it. I saw myself doing it, right? And what was more, I realized that what people really wanted was just to be loved, to be known and accepted for who they were unconditionally. And, you know, that was sobering. But the tragic news is I realized, and I don't know why I got this, but it just struck me really deep, that even if I could find someone who loved me that way, I couldn't handle it because I was too messed up internally and that I wasn't not just deserving of, but capable of receiving unconditional love. And so I was starting to fantasize thoughts of suicide because it's like everything I see people doing makes no sense. There is no clear way forward. Like, what's the point in life? And I kind of went out into the field in the junior high behind our, near our house. And I just said, okay, God, this makes no sense whatsoever. But my parents seem to believe that you're able to handle stuff like this. So I'm just going to trust you and see what happens. And so that led to sort of my second conversion experience when I was 13, where it wasn't just a like intellectual idea. It's like, I was like, okay, God, I need you. It was sort of a decision of the will. And that led to, you know, a certain amount of growth and hope. Although looking back, I think I was still fairly depressed in my teens. And a lot of it was just avoiding dealing with issues of sexuality at all and trying to be a good Christian. And so I kind of persisted in that state through my 20s. And then the next crisis point was just finishing up my degree. I was still single and had no real prospects for that changing. And I just got really angry at God. 
And I just decided that like, you know, the advantage of being smart is I can explain things. The disadvantage is I can talk myself into all sorts of things and get myself into much more convoluted forms of trouble, right? So it is not an, uh, it is both a curse and a blessing, but like everything else, it, it requires great, right? So, but the way it came to me, is like, okay, I can believe that God is real. I can even believe that God is good in some abstract sense of the word, but I have no confidence left that God is good for me that what he wants for me is actually anything that I would want for myself. And worse, if I became the kind of person that wanted what God wanted, I'm not sure I would like myself. And so I kind of very deliberately kind of gave myself over to addiction. And, you know, primarily pornography, dabble with other things along with that. And, you know, just kind of kept like living this sort of suspended life where, you know, I was still in church, still active in various forms of leadership on occasion, you know, still study the Bible and, and all this stuff. And it would kind of some ways goes and waxes and ways, but there was still a sense in like, you know, I really just don't trust God do what's right for me. And so I kind of thought I was gonna be stuck like that. Then through a miraculous series of events we may go into later, I ended up getting married. But as anyone who's been around the block knows a few times, that doesn't change addiction issues. Right. And in my 30s, those blew up. And, and, you know, I talked to my wife, confessed what was going on. I'd warned her about this before we got married. Uh, but so like, it's a real issue. And she says, you need to see a counselor. So we'd actually were living in Sacramento at the time, but I was still working in Silicon Valley. So I met up with my pastor from San Jose that we were still in touch with. We've been trained as a counselor and he suggested a journaling therapy. And nowadays we'd probably call it internal family systems where you take your sort of outer adult and write letters to your inner child and use sort of, he said, the way he phrased it was you could use your greater spiritual and intellectual maturity to connect with your deeper emotional immaturity where these are. And so I started writing these journals and it became this epic saga where I discovered not just sort of my inner child, but my uh, middle teenager. And I discovered that I had a lot of emotional woundedness that I had sort of fragmented away from myself. And there was a part of me that was hurting, but there was a part of me that was like angry. Uh, I called it uh, Junior Ernie, kind of the junior high rebel. And he said, like, I have anger like Galactus, devourer of worlds. So when I'm hearing your story, I'm listening to it. I'm listening to it through the, my own lens. And that's the beautiful thing. God takes us through different things. And we sometimes think we're the only person who's gone through it. But I'm hearing your story because I dealt with pornography myself. I dealt with identification crisis. And I dealt with not wanting to be here. The people we work with in our ministry, a lot of them have t spent time in prison. They've hit rock bottom. And, and the beautiful thing is we don't all have to hit the same rock bottom. But Jesus is there. He's ready and willing to take us when, as you kind of put it, you're ready to surrender and, and accept that he is actually there for us. Yeah. And so, you know, a couple more inflection points that are worth calling out on the journey. Interestingly, uh, the thing that actually helped the most with the temptation was entrepreneurship. So I left Apple after uh, 15 years in product marketing and two years in evangelism. It was very confusing because I, I was in technology evangelism, but I was also head of the Apple Christian Fellowship. And my boss was a Christian and his boss was like the sponsor of the Christian Fellowship. Was like, wait, are you doing evangelism? Is this part of your job? It's like, well, sort of. <laughs> but anyway, I, I left to kind of uh, my midlife crisis in my 40s to go be an entrepreneur. And it was a huge a roller coaster for a bunch of reasons. Part of which I think was because I was actually trying to figure out how to bring the kingdom of God into the marketplace, yes. uh, which unleashed a lot of spiritual warfare that I was woefully unprepared for. The best line was, I think before I left, I was saying, God, like, I have all these big dreams I want to do for my business and do for you and do for the kingdom. And God says, eh, you're not ready yet. 
I go, okay, what do I need to do to get ready? He goes, uh, you need more suffering and more listening. And I'm thinking, okay, any chance I could do more listening and less suffering? And God said, how do you think you learn to listen? And I have found that to be true. <laughs> Sometimes we don't like that path. You know, the, the you know, I have all these fancy degrees from all these fancy schools, right? And but the thing I've realized is that I've spent as much time unlearning what I've learned from there uh, as I have leveraging. And I'm grateful for the opportunities and the learning I've got. But the stuff that is valuable is the stuff you pay for, mm -hmm. right? The stuff that you learn the hard way. You know, if you're like most of us, most of the time we learn it by the own mistakes we make. If we are fortunate, we occasionally build a relationship with someone where we see their pain and that helps us accelerate the learning. But yeah, and I think about this a lot in terms of a lot of my Christian life was focused on trying to avoid pain, avoid sin. And now I'm thinking, you know, that might not be the most effective route for finding God. And so I still wrestle with that quite a bit. The other thing, let me just kind of end with this because I, I tease this, is that, you know, I have been really fortunate during the pandemic in that I have a nice house with people I love. I have a boss who's very indulgent and supportive. And so I've been really good, but I really wanted to invest in the kingdom of God. So I, I built an online Bible study with a bunch of my friends. It's all available on YouTube. And I got to tell you this, is that like some of the most godly, well-educated, Bible-seeking, form-minded Christians you would ever want to meet. And we fought like a bunch of junior high girls. It was the most bizarre thing. And I kept asking myself, like, why is this happening? And I said, okay, one possibility is that we are just far more dysfunctional than any other group of Christian I've been a part of. The other possibility is that we're actually honest enough that these issues are coming up rather than being buried underneath. And it was really an extraordinary group. And like at the end of it, despite all the drama, we all got together and had communion at the end after 42 weeks. And it's all, you know, recorded live. And I just saw God do such extraordinary things. And I started another group based on everything we learned from from that, which walked me through some really horrific things that were going on in my life during that season. And like through all of this, it's like, okay, this is hard, but I got a community and I'm just expecting God to do great things. And it was only last week when I kind of hit this slough spot where like all the people I normally talked to were just connected and I was in this weird in-between state. And I just felt like, Ugh. And I ended up acting out again. And I was thinking about this as I've been processing, I said, okay, one, I'm not going to give into shame and guilt and beating myself up. Two, I'm not going to justify it. I'm like, this person did that, or my wife did this, or my boss did this. Like, okay, no, I'm going to own it, but I'm actually going to rejoice it. This is one of the disciplines my, and I did all the like religious quiet times growing up my whole life. And then I kind of got sick of it and stopped. And I would still read and do devotions, they're very sporadic. But then my lead elder, who I've had a complicated relationship with, but he really speaks into my life in powerful ways. And occasionally I do the same for him. He challenged me to do a daily quiet time. And I said, okay. I'm going to do this because I believe what God wants me to do, but I want to do the thing I did before where it's like there's a list of verses and a list of questions. And so my personal devotional thing, I call it RSVP. And the big part is I'm going to rejoice over everything that happened yesterday. And usually it's a fun exercise, all the things we get before. Occasionally, it's a real struggle. Like, okay, God, now I'm going to rejoice that I gave into pornography. What does that mean? What in God's name does that mean? What in hell does that mean? But it's like, okay, one of the things I've learned is that I can only help people is that if there's a sin that I've overcome and I have grace for, I can pray with authority. If I cannot identify with somebody's sin, I have no grace for them. And I really have nothing to offer them. I can give them the law, which in mild doses is occasionally a little useful, but most of the time it's toxic and kills you. And so it's like, okay, 
Well, the fact that I still have, it's like, oh, wow. Like, I hadn't thought about this, but hey, I'm meeting with you, Sean. God, in his mercy and kindness, decided to give me a taste of what people on this show are probably facing with. And I'm saying like, hey, I don't have this all together. I'm not saying I've licked this. And I'm not even actually worried about that because my identity is not based on my own purity. My identity is based that I am God's child and he's using everything that happened to not just grow me into his image, but to equip me to be a redeemer for others so I can be more like Jesus. And it is the sins that I identify with that I'm receiving grace for that allows me to be like Jesus in a broken world. And so that the the thing that I'm learning, I'm like, part of it was also I was getting ahead of my skis and taking on larger challenges I could handle. So I'm like, I need to pull back and say, okay, I shouldn't be praying against these spiritual principalities until I get my ducks in a row. And like, this is a lesson. But it's like, okay, it's a good lesson. It was the lesson I needed to learn. And just being able to rest in God's grace and say, okay, this happened. I'm not proud of this. I'm not happy about this. But this is the next thing I need to learn. And it's good. That God is good, even especially in my brokenness and failure. And, you know, and, and this is the thing that is so hard for me to communicate to people. When my, my startup, it was a glorious failure. Six months in, we were running out of money. I had to fire the guy who worked for me. It was this wonderful Christian guy working with me. We prayed every day online, on YouTube and everything. And like, but we did a devotion on Hebrews 12. And like, it finally struck me, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Like Esau got to live in his own house, marry whoever he wanted, make all his money, keep all of his money. And God hated him. And God loved Esau, loved Jacob. And Jacob got disowned by his father, ran away from his brother, cheated by his father-in-law, married the wrong woman. It's like, this is what God does to those he loves. It's like, have you heard of a guy named Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And it's like, you know, and it's hard to explain. I don't know if it's possible to explain, but there's a place you get to where you see Jesus and you see Jesus seeing you and you realize he loves me so much. His is the love that is not just loving me unconditionally, but loving me transformationally in order to make me the person who can receive that kind of love, which I had despaired of becoming when I was 13. And it's like, oh, to know love like that and to be able to become a person who can share that love with others is so beautiful and so worthwhile that all these things, and you know, I can't say I've suffered very much in the grand scheme of things, but I've had some hard things to swallow that I did not think I would have had to go through. But I can look back on those and say, it was worth it for the privilege of knowing Jesus, of sharing in his resurrection power, and to be part of this extraordinary redemptive drama that he is working in the world. I can't end it any better than this, but to say, in about a minute, you you have really done a great job of explaining that, you know what, you don't have it all together. For someone who's just tuning in and saying, I really don't feel that connection, what what would you say to that person? Maybe it's that 13-year-old you. What would you say to that 13-year-old you? Because we, we work with a lot of teens. What would you say to them about not giving up? You know, the best thing I can say is this. Logically, you can look at the world and see every reason in the world to give up. Every reason that the word is doomed, that no one loves you. And, they, and you can build, build a pure, coherent, logical argument. But I bet that if you sit down and are really honest with yourself, you've seen somebody who had every reason you did for despairing and every reason for giving up on you and every reason for turning their back on the world. And they chose to not do that. And for me, it was my parents. You know, I said, okay, 
this doesn't make any sense, but there's something there that doesn't fit my narrative of despair. And I'm just going to reach for that and see what happens. So I pray for all of you who are listening that, you know, however you found this podcast, there's somebody praying for you and there's somebody around you that you say, you know, yeah, that guy was like kind and cheerful when no one else had a reason to be. Let me just ask them what they've been through that has given them that hope. And maybe that'll be the thread that you can pull on to find a way forward. Amen and amen. Ernie, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure and and have a blessed week. And I'm sure we're going to have to do a follow-up to see how things are going because I love the honesty that you brought here today. John, can I just say a prayer for our listeners before we break? That that would be awesome. Yes, please. God, I thank you that you use all of us. Uh, I don't know much of Sean's story, but I can guess pieces of it from where we resonated. And I don't know all the stories of the people listening, but I think everyone knows what it's like to feel alone. Anyone knows what it's like to feel despair. Anyone knows what it's like to feel unloved. And I thank you that you knew that too, that you know that even now, that you feel every heartbeat, every tear that we experience, and that your son felt all of that on the cross. He chose that because he would rather face that than live without it because he wants us to know the depths of that love. I just pray that the people listening, that they would feel the depths of your love for them and they would reach out for that. And those who know that love would have the courage to keep digging deeper into their own sin and their own pain and the sin and pain of those around them, that together we can become your hands and feet in this world. And I thank you, Lord, that as the world grows darker and people lose faith in our human institution, that the kingdom of God is breaking through like never before. And I pray, Lord, that we would see a revival of the fruit of the Spirit, that your love, joy, and peace would flood this land in defiance of everything our human reason tells us, and that you alone would get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us.
that you have enjoyed the last half hour as much as I did. Thank you again to Refuge Ministries Canada for hosting the show. So until next Friday, may God richly bless you with peace, love, and happiness. We at Refuge Ministries are so blessed by the success of Refuge Freedom Stories and podcasts. In addition, we focus on youth prison ministry, release kits, and many other diverse outreaches to the needs of our community. As a nonprofit, there are many costs involved, however, and we are asking for your support. Financial gifts can be made via our website at www.refugeministriescanada.com or by calling 519-701-0108. Your giving makes this work possible, and we thank you in advance for your support. That's 519-701-0108. God bless you.